So as you remember last week, we studied Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, regarding the ultimate expression of God's love for us. This morning, we're going to be continuing in verse 11 through 22 um, of that same chapter, and we're going to go ahead and finish it. The title of this morning's teaching is Our Unity in Christ. Our Unity in Christ. So last week, Paul reminded us of the richness of God's mercy and love. He presented a, a powerful examination of humanity's spiritual condition. He talked about the spiritual transformation that can come only from God's grace. He reminded us of the purpose for which we are saved, fellowship and community with the Lord. Paul highlights the universal need for God's redemption and underscored the serious nature of our separation from God and how he, God, intervened to rescue us from our helpless state. Through Christ's sacrifice, his death and resurrection, a divine transaction took place. And we who were dead in sin and trust in Jesus are made alive in Christ, experiencing a profound spiritual rebirth. And that it's through God's divine love and mercy and grace that we find our salvation. So with that, let's go ahead and pick up where we left off in Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll begin with verse 11. In verse 11, it begins, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh, by hands. Now, those of uh, you who are in my, my Monday night Bible study, um, you know when you see a paragraph beginning with therefore, what do we ask? What's it there for? That's right. So therefore, in other words, in light of what we just talked about in verses 1 through 10 about God's mercy, grace, and love, he begins with at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So to the Jews, that is the circumcision, to be called uncircumcised, was, it was kind of a slam, really. It signified that you were outside, that you were an outsider and not part of the covenant God made with his people Israel. You may remember Jeff talking about this not too long ago. Gentiles or Gentile, goy goyim is the Hebrew word. Um, it's given to the group or people of people who are outside of the people of Israel. It's basically everyone else. There's Israel and everyone else, right? And so the everyone else are the Gentiles. Paul points out that we were called or considered the uncircumcised by the Jewish people. Circumcision was done to every Jewish male baby as a physical sign of the covenant between them and God. Now, God gave them this commandment through Abraham. We read in Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 10. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So circumcision was given to the Jewish people as a physical sign of them being set apart from the world and unto God. But as the Apostle Paul, a Jew himself from the tribe of Benjamin and former Pharisee, 
points out in Romans chapter 2, uh, verse 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. So with that information, let's go ahead and pick it up in verses 12 and 13. And verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul's telling them, it's true, you, we, um, were once far away from God. He had just finished stating that in the uh, the first 10 verses, remember? Apart from Christ, we had no hope in this world. And at this point, you may be asking yourself, well, what about the Jewish people? Does this mean that they were saved while the rest of the world wasn't? Were the Jewish saved through this covenant uh, of the law and uh, of the law of Moses? Was this is this is what by keeping the law of Moses is this what you know gave them salvation? So I think it's important to point out two very important truths at this point. The first point is in the Old Testament before Jesus came. God had long established a covenant with the children of Israel through Abraham, right? But the Apostle Paul points out something very important. In Romans 9, verses 7 through 8, it says, And not all of children, all the children of Abraham, and not all are the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And in Romans 4, verses 1 through 12, Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, forefather of the Jewish people, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And this blessing then only for the is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Paul's asking this, this rhetorical question. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. 
The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that the righteous would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the uncircumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So these passages, as well as others, clearly tell us that salvation comes through faith. For the Jewish people of the Old Testament covenant, it comes by faith as well. Paul points out, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness before the covenant of circumcision. Scripture tells us for the Jewish people, the covenant was a matter of faith and trust in the promises of God, not from a birthright or obedience to the law. The second point is Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. God has expanded his covenant and salvation to include all human beings, Gentiles and Jews alike, who by faith in Jesus accept it. Jesus said in Matthew 5, uh, verse 17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have, come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In Romans 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul, again a Jew by birth himself, says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jewish people, is that they may be saved for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what do we conclude from all of this? Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That is to say, the Old Testament covenant. In fact, the reason he was born to the Jewish people of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David, was to fulfill the prophecy from the same books of the law and prophets about the coming Messiah. He preached and ministered to the people of Israel. He was first to and for the lost house of Israel, God's covenant people. Paul says it in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Another way of saying us Gentiles. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. Amen. Verses 14 through 16, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So that making peace and so that so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Not only does the work of Jesus reconcile us to God, it also reconciles us with each other, us both 
referred to in verse 14. Are the Jews that God's, uh, God's chosen people under the old covenant and the Gentiles who were the non-Jews? Jesus, through his sacrifice on the, Christ, on the cross, brought reconciliation and abolished the hostility and separation that existed between the two groups to those who were made alive in Christ Jesus. Even greater than that, Christ reconciled them both to God, providing a way for all people to be brought into and restored relationship with him. The cross of Jesus is central to this reconciliation because it was through Jesus' sacrificial death that the hostility between humanity and God was overcome. Jesus' death on the cross paid the price for sin, offering forgiveness and salvation to all those who believed in him. Paul explained that Jesus achieved this unity by fulfillment of the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, including its commands and regulations. The sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross established a new covenant in which the distinction between Jews and Gentiles was no longer relevant. Through his death, Jesus created a new humanity, a new spiritual community that's not defined by ethnicity or religious background, but rather by faith in Jesus. Jesus alluded to this illustration of the, in, the good, uh, in the illustration of the good shepherd in John 10, verse 16, when he said, when Jesus said, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. This community is characterized by peace, as Jesus' work on the cross brought reconciliation and harmony. Verse 17. And he came and he preached to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Continuing in this theme of peace, Paul refers to those who were far off, meaning the Gentiles, because as Gentiles, they knew little or nothing about God before Christ. The Jews were near to God because they had the scriptures and they worshiped God and they had their their ceremonies and their ordinances. However, because neither group could be saved by their good deeds, knowledge or sincerity, both needed to receive Jesus. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's pretty clear, huh? And again, Scripture tells us in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God's very clear. Jesus is the only way for everyone. Verse 18. For through him, we both have access to one spirit, to the Father, in one spirit, to the Father. Notice all three persons of the Godhead are mentioned here in this verse. Him, Jesus, the Son. Spirit, capital S, Spirit, the Holy Spirit, right? And the Father. All believers through Christ and his sacrifice have access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. It's because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, Jews and Gentiles together in one spirit have access to the very throne room of God. Not just as our king, 
but as our father and us as his children. As Paul tells us who are Gentiles in Romans 11, uh, verse 17, you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Jesus brought the gospel to all people, regardless of race, culture, sex, politics, economic status, or any other label that divides people into different groups. Last week, we talked about the fallen state of humanity and how we are all just bad copies of bad copies of bad copies. We're plagued by thousands of years of generational sin. We see the results of this every day. Our history is replete with one failed horrible example after another. Everything human beings do, everything we put our hands on, is tainted by sin. Every effort by human beings to better their existence as a race is thwarted and eventually turns into a failed endeavor. We'd like to think we humans are good and noble creatures. We'd like to think that. We aren't. We aren't. We're still stained by sin. You don't have to believe me. You don't have to believe me. History doesn't lie to us. And as believers, it's very easy for us to be distracted by the issues and struggles of a fallen world around us. But truthfully, they have always been here. Always. Until Jesus returns, they will always be here. Always. Humanity is incapable of creating a utopia. It's just the truth. As much as we yearn for it, we are incapable of it. We've been trying since the fall. Does this mean as Christians we shouldn't care about what goes on in the world around us? No, of course not. Of course not. We need to care. We need to care. We need to love our neighbor. But the real solution to the aching, troubled, and tormented human heart is the love of Jesus. That's the answer. If we really want to love on the world around us, then we need to share the love of Jesus and the good news of the gospel with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers. Jesus was the answer. Jesus is the answer. And Jesus will always be the answer. Christ is the great equalizer and unifier who brings us peace. We will never truly find it anywhere else. And at times, we have struggles with it even in our own family, don't we? In our own church family, in our own Christian community. But he is still the answer. This is the mission we were given. It's been called the Great Commission. Jesus himself spoke of it at the end of the book of Matthew. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, we read, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always 
to the end of the ages. That is our mission as Christians. That's what we are called to do. That is the only place peace can be found. Verse 19, so, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul starts with so then. Some translations render this, so therefore. <laughs> and again, we know to ask, what is it there for, right? Um, Paul is referring back to the previous statements he made about their redemption and reconciliation in Christ. He wants the Gentile believers to understand the implications of their new status. Prior to their faith in Christ, they were considered foreigners and strangers, separated from the promises and blessings of God's people, Israel. But now, because of their faith in Jesus, they have been included in the family of God. Paul uses two metaphors to describe this new identity. First, he says that Gentile believers are fellow citizens with God's people. Now, in ancient times, particularly in Rome, citizenship was highly valued, and it carried various rights and privileges. By using this metaphor, Paul is highlighting the equal standing of Gentile believers alongside Jewish believers in the kingdom of God. They now share in this same rights and privileges of God's chosen people. And second, Paul describes Gentile believers here as members of his household, this metaphor conveys the idea of intimate belonging and inclusion within God's family. They're not just citizens in a distant kingdom. They're now part of God's closely knit family, enjoying the benefits and blessings of being his children. This verse emphasizes the unity and equality of believers in Christ, regardless of their sex, ethnic, or cultural backgrounds. It also highlights the idea that through faith, all believers become part of a larger spiritual family of God with a shared identity and purpose. Paul encourages all believers to recognize and embrace their new identity as fellow citizens and members of God's household, fostering a sense of unity and belonging within the community of faith. Verse 20. Build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. God's household is built on a solid foundation, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Paul extends this metaphor to describe Christ as the cornerstone, a common construction technique that has persisted from ancient times until today, really. It's used... Um, the cornerstone, or I should say the foundation of a building, is started by laying a cornerstone. The cornerstone is a cube, a rectangle-shaped stone, and it must be as near perfectly straight as possible with 90-degree angles. The foundation, the sides and walls, are laid in straight lines extending from the cornerstone. In order for the structure's sides to be straight, the cornerstone must be straight. Paul tells us the building, our faith, and the church is built with Jesus as its source, the cornerstone. And the apostles and the prophets are the base from which it is formed, the foundation. Through the teachings of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ as its cornerstone, the church is built up and strengthened. 
verse 21 says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul asserts that in Christ, the whole building is joined together. This phrase underscores the unity and the interdependence of believers within the body of Christ. The church isn't merely a gathering of individuals, but a collective entity where each member has a vital role to play. It emphasizes that all believers, regardless of their background or ethnicity, are now part of a united family in Christ. Furthermore, Paul declares that the building rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. This image of a temple represents the dwelling place of God, a sacred space where his presence resides. In the Old Testament, God's presence dwelled in the physical temple in Jerusalem. But now, through the work of Christ, believers themselves have become the dwelling place of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the church is not just a physical structure, but a spiritual temple where God's presence is manifest. That in the, in its, uh, it's a, a community set apart for his service and dedicated to his purposes. The transformation of the church into a holy temple signifies the sanctification and purification that we believers experience through our union with Christ. In summary, verse 21 conveys the unity, purpose, and sanctity of the church. It highlights how all believers, regardless of their background, are joined together in Christ to form a spiritual building with Jesus as its cornerstone. The ultimate goal is for the church to become a holy temple, reflecting the presence of God in the world. Verse 22 says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This verse is the concluding statement of our study today in Ephesus. It emphasizes the unity and transformation that believers experience through their faith in Jesus. In the preceding verses, Paul talked about how Gentiles, non-Jews, were once spiritually separated from God and his covenant with Israel. However, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who reconciled humanity to God, this division was abolished. Paul explains that both Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ have been brought near to God and have become one body. And verse 22 speaks directly to this new spiritual reality. It's, it conveys the idea that believers, both Jews and Gentiles, with everything and everyone that entails, are being built together into one unified structure. This metaphorical construction signifies the formation of a spiritual dwelling place for God. And as I said before, instead of a physical temple made of stone, God chooses to dwell within the collective body of his believers. Again, this dwelling is made possible by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that lives in each and every one of us. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God within us and the rest of the body of believers. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, believers are united with God and with one another, forming a spiritual temple where God's presence resides. Isn't that a beautiful picture? God dwells in the midst of his community of believers. 
that's amazing. Who are being built together by the Holy Spirit into a spiritual dwelling place for God. So in conclusion, Ephesians 2, it, it serves as a powerful reminder of the transformative power of God's grace and the unifying work of Jesus. It emphasizes how we're once dead in our sins and separated from God, but through God's unimaginable mercy, we have been made alive and reconciled to him. This redemption is not based on our own efforts, our own merits, our own works, but it's a gift freely given by God. Ephesians 2 also highlights the significance of Christ's sacrifice, which broke down the walls of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, creating a new people united in him. As believers, we're called to live in light of this new identity. This is our identity. Walking in good works prepared for us by God and embracing the peace and unity found in Christ. Ultimately, Ephesians 2 reminds us that our salvation is a testament to God's love and grace and purpose and calls us to respond in gratitude and obedience and love for him and for one another. For him and for one another. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful, great, merciful work you have done on our behalf, Lord. We can't fathom it. We can't imagine it. But, Lord, we're so grateful because we're incapable, Lord. We're incapable of saving ourselves. Father, we thank you. We ask you, Lord, to draw near to us and remind us daily Remind us daily of who we are in you, Lord. Let us be united together. Let us be one people, Lord. And let us remember that we are one people. In Jesus' name, amen.